Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Joshua D. Wright, University Professor and Executive Director of the Global Antitrust Institute at George Mason University Scalia Law School. We will discuss his article, Reprium for a Paradox, The Dubious Rise and Inevitable Fall of Hipster Antitrust, which he co-authored with Elise Dorsey, Jonathan Click, and Jan M. Ribnicek, and which will be published in the Arizona State Law Journal. So welcome to the program, Josh. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. It was a really interesting and, and dense paper on a subject that's been getting an awful lot of airplay lately. Um, and so I'm really interested to hear uh, kind of uh, hear your perspective on this kind of hot button question. And for the benefit of listeners who may not be antitrust specialists or, you know, have a robust sense of, of antitrust law, I was wondering if you could describe the prevailing position on the proper goal of antitrust policy. Sure. I think a place, the right place to start for the sort of prevailing modern uh, antitrust position is 1977. Um, so 1977, the Supreme Court decides uh, GTE Sylvania versus Continental TV. And in the antitrust landscape, uh, this decision is often looked upon as sort of the big inflection point in the evolution of antitrust. It would oversimplify um, a ton to say that from 1890 to 1977, um, the goals of antitrust or antitrust doctrine more generally was sort of out um, lost in the wilderness. Uh, but it's often the way that that first sort of period of antitrust is described. If you were to take a, a cruise through uh, antitrust opinions from 1890 to 1977, you see what you sort of expect to see the Supreme Court doing struggling with a statutory command that is uh, about as vague as they come for a body of laws broad and as powerful as antitrust, right? So the Sherman Act says uh, no restraints of trade. Courts jump on this and say, well, surely that can't mean all contracts are felonies. Uh, the Sherman mm-hmm. Act comes with, with criminal penalties. And so they start sort of digging around for how to make sense of that command in conjunction with the Sherman Act Section 2 command uh, that th- thou shall not monopolize. Right? And so you see courts struggle with a, a hodgepodge of uh, objective functions, if you will, for the, the statute. Are we doing consumer welfare? Are we trying to protect uh, particular industries, small businesses, um, you know, achieve other socioeconomic ends, deal with income inequality, et cetera. And so you see sort of necessarily, you know, a body of doctrine that's um, sort of a, a servant to many masters and not doing any of it particularly well, at least goes um, a critique of that body of law, uh, certainly one that I agree with. And the one that led to Robert Bork writing the antitrust paradox uh, in 1978, well, what, really wrote it before that, but published in 1978, pointing to this old body of law and saying, goodness, this is supposed to be a consumer-oriented statute. We're surely not doing that well. And in some places, we're creating monopoly power with the doctrine. 
So you have this big kind of uh, ta-da reveal moment, epiphany of antitrust doctrine in the late 70s, where the court comes along and says, we are going to make consumer welfare the lodestar of antitrust. There are other decisions, you know, Ryder versus Sonatone comes along uh, the next year that explicitly points to Borg's work and says, um, antitrust is a consumer welfare prescription, sort of tries to hang some legislative history gloss on the changing of the objective function. Uh, But those were really the big two cases that set the stage for modern antitrust. So from 1977 to current, again, necessarily oversimplifying, you've got antitrust institutions growing and developing and evolving around the idea that what we're going to do is going is have a uniform purpose. We're going to design antitrust institutions to promote consumer welfare, right? Antitrust is not going to be about everything. It's not even going to be about all the things that impact, impact consumer welfare. It's going to be about creation of monopoly power that has an impact on consumer welfare. Um, mm. And so you see the, the evolution of Sherman Act doctrine, of merger law, of guidelines within the agencies, sort of courts and agencies and scholarship um, among economists and, and elsewhere, all at the same time sort of converging on antitrust to help design these institutions to make sense of antitrust from a consumer welfare perspective. And that doesn't mean just to sort of round out the, the kind of modern state of play. Uh, it is often, and, and I'm sure we'll get into sort of some of the critiques uh, that have been leveled against the consumer welfare paradigm. Many of them start with what I think is a, um, an incorrect premise, that is what the consumer welfare standard means is we kind of count up the, the cost and the benefits of every piece of business conduct and we you know, we estimate them to the penny, and if the harms outweigh the benefits, the thing's illegal. That's not uh, what the consumer welfare standard is or was, right? It, it is sometimes uh, used interchangeably and incorrectly to mean stuff that decreases welfare is illegal under the antitrust laws. Instead, it's meant um, we are going to design antitrust institutions with consumer welfare as the maximum. That sometimes means we get legal rules like the per se rule against cartels, where there's no counting up or cost of benefits at all, or safe harbors that do the same. Um, But it has become the lodestar of modern antitrust in terms of uh, the design of legal rules and how the the institutions, enforcement agencies, courts, et cetera, sort of orient themselves uh, toward the antitrust enterprise. Right. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the consumer welfare standard and how it's sort of taking that as the primary goal of antitrust law in in the late 70s, sort of change the perspective on what antitrust policy and enforcement should should look like. In other words, how did shifting from, I guess, whatever the Previous standards or standards might have been, standard or standards might have been to a kind of uniform focus on consumer welfare affect how policymakers and legal act and scholars approached antitrust policy and what it should look like. Yeah, so I think it did. Um, you know, this was a big, the big intellectual paradigm shift uh, of antitrust, and so that a, a couple of major effects. Perhaps um, 
So I guess let me lead with two. The first is if you go back and you look at antitrust doctrine in the uh, mid-60s through the earlier 70s, and we were to sit down and make a list of uh, stuff that was illegal, for sure, under the antitrust laws, um, prevailing merger doctrine at the time, Vaughn's Grocery, Brown Shoe, and the like, you know, mergers where the combined firm moves to 5% share, um, definitely illegal. Right? Uh, Justice Stewart observes in his dissent in uh, Vaughn's Grocery in 1960, the only consistency in Section 7 is that the government always wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, basically all horizontal mergers, illegal. Uh, most vertical mergers, illegal. Anything that you would want to do in a contractual arrangement uh, within a vertical supply chain, that's not a, a sort of spot transaction. I hand you the money and you hand me the input. Probably illegal. Re- resale price maintenance, tying, exclusive dealing. Um, most of the things illegal, some of them felonies, sort of at least subject to uh, prosecutorial discretion if the DOJ wants to go civil or criminal. So you had an era where virtually all that you can think of, any licensing arrangement between a patent uh, holder and a licensee um, with any sort of condition or restriction, uh, almost undoubtedly uh, illegal during the same time period. And so the first thing that happened is under the consumer welfare regime, the mode of analysis changed from looking at the four corners of the contractual restraint to identify illegality right we did more than you know sort of hold up the document in the air read it and then put it in the illegal box or the legal box right Mm. Um, antitrust was fairly mechanical and mostly about per se rules of liability so the mode of analysis became instead became starting in the late 70s let's figure out the effects of the agreement uh and 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 that will determine its legality and so the big obvious sort of intellectual change was this was, uh, you know, opening the gate uh, to the barbarians. In this case, the economists play the role of the barbarians uh, coming in to sort of sweep through the doctrine. The economists had had some input on antitrust before then. So, you know, Oliver Williamson, who wins a Nobel Prize, um, does a visit at the DOJ in the late 60s. Aaron Director is teaching in law school in Chicago uh, even before that. Economists are sort of around, um, but they don't have, I mean, they're around because they find the stuff interesting. There's no doctrinal hook for economists to play uh, in antitrust, but they start looking at the body of decisions um, and saying, none of this makes any sense. There's a big industrial organization economics revolution happening at Chicago. And um, I'm a UCLA guy. So I'd like to point out a big part of this revolution is at UCLA too. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's all going on. It's a little bit of a perfect storm in industrial organization economics and in the law and at the agencies, which is a part of the story that often gets left out, right? So you've got, uh, you know, Reagan appointed judges in the 80s, including some law and economics friendly types, the, the Ginsburg, Posner, Easterbrook, um, you know, Judge Williams, Kaczynski, all that. But at the agencies, you know, Bill Baxter goes into the DOJ, who's a, a sort of very sophisticated, uh, not a, a PhD economist, but a very sophisticated economic mind for a lawyer, you know, peer-reviewed stuff in economic journals and whatnot. 
uh, Jim Miller becomes the chairman of the FTC and an economics PhD from, uh, from Virginia tech. And so you've got uh, kind of all of this happening at once uh, working on, well, economists and law and economics better provide a new framework if we are going to uh, ditch the old one. So we need a set of tools for how do we figure out if we're not just um, declaring all horizontal mergers illegal, if we're not just declaring all of the vertical restraints between, you know, all arrangements with Coke and its supermarkets about the promotion of the product to be illegal, what's the analytical framework we're going to use? Um, and so you see merger guidelines that start to import really what were state-of-the-art economics at the time coming through the agencies, ultimately adopted by the courts. The same sorts of revolution hits vertical restraints in the in the courts, the, the, the Article Three courts, not the not the uh, the expert agencies. The Article Three courts in private litigation do most of the work in figuring out how to do. Uh, antitrust under a consumer welfare standard for vertical restraints. Um, mm -hmm. And so you've got sort of all of these motions hitting uh, at the same time. I, I don't, I don't think obviously not an expert in all of the other areas of law, but I really do think the 180 degree turn of antitrust and something that's sort of a, you know, Posner describes it as a, 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 a quote unquote federal common law subject. I'm still not sure exactly what that means, but, uh, but but I catch his drift. Um, this is a an air, a statutory area of law that really moves through common law like processes, and it moves so quickly. Uh, it really mm. is, I think, one of the unique um, kind of intellectual stories. Certainly, one of the um, most involving law and economics uh, that I, that I know of in American mm -hmm. jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as we, as I mentioned earlier, and as you well know, there's obviously been a lot of increased interest in antitrust law and especially antitrust enforcement from like a range of different uh, groups in, especially in recent years. And, and my sense is kind of an outsider to antitrust scholarship is that on one level, there's a kind of a perception that the Chicago school moved to kind of entrench the consumer welfare standard as the kind of lodestar of, of antitrust policy. I mean, among other things, introduced a kind of additional level of, you might almost call it like regulatory humility to the antitrust project. And as a consequence led to practically speaking, less antitrust enforcement, at least in my understanding, kind of on the ground that, you know, we should really be sure that intervening is going to produce a good outcome rather than than a bad outcome. And I think on one level, there's a kind of a general sense that today, people who are pushing for more antitrust enforcement are maybe making the argument that, well, maybe more enforcement would produce better outcomes consistent with the consumer welfare standard. But it, but it sounds like there's potentially something additional going on within this new movement, at least within certain respects of it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this sort of revival of you know, what you characterize as elements, and actually they themselves sometimes characterize as elements of the pre-77 sort of approach to antitrust law. What are people, what do people want to do and, and why? Yeah, so 
that uh, t- to me has been a li- to, for starters has been a little bit of a moving target. Um, but here's where I think things stand. We have always had debates in antitrust under the consumer welfare standard of whether we should do less or more. And there's a fairly good consensus around, for example, cartel enforcement. So uh, one thing the Chicago school, uh, sort of the introduction first of the, the Chicago school, but an often missed point about the introduction of the Chicago school is really about bringing economics to the law. Um, you know, the Chicago school, as much as you sort of you hear differently in criticisms about uh, modern antitrust, it, the economics being used in modern antitrust just ain't Chicago school. It's not. Um, you know, there's merger simulations, models of unilateral effects. There's, uh, you know, the raising rivals cost paradigm introduced by Steve Salop. Um, there's Chicago elements too. I mean, the Chicago school was about price theory and empirics. And so that stuff's there too. Um, but oftentimes the, uh, the oversimplification of the, the Chicago school kind of running rampant over, old antitrust to take over the new doctrine. I mean, there's some historical accuracy. Chicago was first. So I get where that comes from. Um, But at the same time, you know, I spend a lot of time in front of the agencies, at the agencies when I was commissioner, writing about the stuff. Now, um, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a Chicago school economist on the staff at the FTC or the DOJ. Um, You know, maybe, maybe one, one or two. Um, but that's just not what people learn in graduate school. And it really gives short shrift, I think, to the mix of intellectual contributions that make up the intellectual foundation of the consumer welfare standard. Yes, there's a Chicago strand. Yes, there is within that Chicago strand, as you mentioned, sort of uh, a raising of the hand to say, if we're trying to maximize consumer welfare, we need to be concerned both with type one and type two error false positives and false negatives. Um, Frank Easterbrook, uh, no doubt a Chicagoan, uh, raised the point that we ought to, in antitrust, be more concerned with false positives than false negatives uh, because false negatives eventually at some point kind of correct themselves, right? If I, if I fail to stop a monopolist, well, monopoly power attracts entry at some point, whereas the cost of a type one error might, uh, might go on for a really, there's no natural equilibrating force. That proposition gets a bunch of attention. It's adopted in modern Supreme Court antitrust doctrine, in particular monopolization doctrine. So there's no doubt elements of Chicago, important elements of Chicago. But the Harvard School and concerns about administrability are there. Um, are there, no doubt. These Supreme Court decisions that establish the consumer welfare standard, these are nine nothing. You know, this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that often is missed that there's some sort of uh, right-wing Chicago conservative conspiracy. And the truth of the matter is, I think there was pretty broad consensus, left, right, and center, that the movement from pre-1970s antitrust to the consumer welfare standard was a first-order Pareto improvement. And then we have lots of second-order fights. Um, you know. Uh, Steve Salop at Georgetown is far more interventionist than I. We adopt the consumer welfare framework, and we're going to disagree on the margins about 
some vertical mergers. I think the AT&T Time Warner case is no good and he likes it, right? Um, but we agree on the, on the framework. So sort of the first point to me is what is happening in the rebuttal, the criticism of the consumer welfare standard, Chicago's a fun target, right? Um, but it's not to me, I don't interpret the tack to be one that is about um, going after Chicago or even going after conservatives, I, I think, or conservative antitrust. So I think part of what makes the modern criticism of the consumer welfare standard um, both wrong, but also uh, and, and dangerous in terms of uh, its ultimate impact on competition and the economy, but also pretty interesting, is that I don't read the criticism to be about supplanting Chicago at all. Modern antitrust is not resting only on uh, Chicago economics, but the Harvard School uh, jurisprudence that ties together Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, empirical insights that have hit economics in the last 20 years, uh, the game theoretic formulations that sort of entered IO economics in the late 80s and since. And so it's a sort of far more robust kind of body of IO economics upon which anti the antitrust enterprise sits. And I read most of uh, what I've described uh, as sort of hipster antitrust or, 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 or some of them now uh, sort of self, self-describe as neo-Brandeisians. I think that that criticism now is not about the Chicago school. It's about taking the economics out of antitrust uh, because it's been a hindrance to allowing antitrust to be a policy instrument that does a lot of different things at once. Mm. So mm. to me, that is both um, at a 30,000 foot level. It begs the question, well, if I'm going to do consumer welfare and three other things, um, well, I'm going to get less consumer welfare, right? I'm going to make consumers less well off, but what am I getting for it? And that's a question um, I don't think has been answered by many of the many of the critics. I, I think the vague answer is I'm getting, you know, an improvement in democracy, or or, or uh, I'm going to do something with economic inequality or, uh, that I wouldn't get under the consumer welfare standard. Uh, but I think that kind of is a fundamental question that is that is pressing. I am going to um, reduce consumer welfare in order to achieve some other thing. I think mm -hmm. it's important. Um, I think it's important when thinking about the criticism coming outside of, from, of mainstream antitrust institutions. First, let me say, I think it's fantastic intellectually that the criticism is there. It has a lot of energy behind it. Uh, and it is getting a lot of attention. And I trust, I think, um, like lots of fields, I think it needs that to have, you know, time to, you know, disrupt, disruption is good. And it forces you to, you know, um, reflect on whether the institutions are doing what you, you want them to do. So I think it's fantastic um, mm -hmm. for starters. Right. I think, so also, I think one, one uh, other point I'll, I'll make briefly is I think also it's important for me, I now um, sort of classify the critics into two basic camps, and I think it's, um, it's important to do that. So one level of criticism against the consumer welfare standard is um, 
we will spot you your goal and we just say you're performing it poorly, right? So I want to reorient antitrust institutions to do other things. We can have um, uh, some of the folks in open markets have said, let's have 10% bright line guidelines for mergers. Um, there's no doubt. I think you can line up 100 out of 100 sort of practicing antitrust economists and say, what will that do to consumer welfare? And they will say the average effect will be negative and large. Um, but they think we're going to get sort of something else out of it in consumer welfare in the, in the long run. So there's sort of a, uh, a group that I think is let's have bright line rules, take the complicated economics out of antitrust and just have a series of bright line rules and use them to manage the economy. So bans on vertical integration by platforms have been proposed, you know, uh, old bright lines, sort of small market share standards. No complicated economics to figure out the facts. Let's just sort of good old-fashioned um, rules versus standards debate. And there are other elements in the um, the camp of the critics who say, well, forget the bright line rules. Let's make antitrust sort of a, a public interest mandate more like the FCC. Um, some have walked away from that public interest kind of vague standard. Um, others um, – have, have stuck to it. But I think that's an important distinction among the critics. So, so to the extent that there is this distinction, it sounds like even within people loosely grouped under the hipster antitrust, new Brandeisian sort, sort of label, it sounds like there's some people essentially saying that the kind of consensus prevailing position is normatively okay, just not the optimal way of reaching its own stated goal. Like we should be doing something else that will actually do a better job of increasing consumer welfare than the kind of current, um, current standard approach. But it sounds like maybe some of the people are taking issue with some of the more foundational normative premises of the kind of consensus prevailing view. Is that right? And if so, what kinds of values or concerns do they identify as not being sufficiently respected by the prevailing view? So I think that's absolutely right. I think both styles of criticism exist. Um, just like you said, the first being, Hey, consumer welfare, uh, guys and girls, you are failing on your own terms. Um, and those types of, of, uh, criticisms have been, Oh, um, I, I think there's some excellent work that's been done on trying to identify the effects of common ownership, right? So uh, you've got um, the same firm, maybe a hedge fund or an investment fund, owning small shares of um, and sometimes very small shares of lots of competitors in the same industry, right? Um, and so the criticism goes something like, Maybe those mergers are anti-competitive, but the agencies and courts are missing them because our traditional consumer welfare-based tools aren't picking them up. Um, and so there's been some academic work to try to and, – and, and some papers that have identified anti-competitive effects. Um, there's been some criticisms of that work. But this is the way antitrust economics and antitrust institutions have generally developed, right? Somebody brings up uh, a theory or does some empirical work, you know, um, – a big fan of the view that one one or even two papers doesn't doesn't make a literature, um, but antitrust has sometimes with with a lag adjusted to new thinking and economic learning, um, 
because the Sherman Act is broad enough and the consumer welfare standard is broad enough to sort of accept new and proved and robust knowledge and, and, and sort of reject others. So common, common ownership is one example there. Um, there are other attempts to, uh, so most of the work on monopsony is another good example um, of claims that the antitrust institutions have generally looked for market power in product markets, but missed it in labor markets. Um, I don't have a strong prior on that for what it's worth. Uh, I was a big proponent when I was at the FTC on um, some efforts to look more closely at non-competes. And some of that effort has started to pick up now. Um, I, I think with studies and talks about rulemaking and what, and whatnot within side the FTC. So, um, but this is the way I think antitrust enterprises within the standard have look, if there's a blind spot and there needs to be more, more done or we're missing something, um, then we identify that uh, and, and, and do more. Uh, the other bucket is uh, beyond blind spots or beyond, you know, sort of calibrating your consumer welfare antitrust weapons uh, to sort of shoot more accurately and, you know, get better at reducing both type two and type one error rate. That's sort of how I think about it. There's this sort of other criticism that, well, you're missing other other goals, right? And you can formulate that argument in a lot of different ways. Um, one way you might formulate that argument is to say large firms, whether they have a good impact or bad impact on consumer welfare in the economy, um, you know, create some other form of negative externality, maybe not one measured by the consumer welfare standard. Maybe this gets you pretty quickly into, um, you know, for, for, for those with a background in antitrust back into sort of the biggest bad pre 1970s stuff, right? Um, large firms are bad because I think most of the neo Brandeisians would argue, you know, large firms can exit, you know, can exercise a, uh, disproportionate influence on the political process and create market power and, you know, sort of with firm size correlates with rent seeking, which correlates with, you know, government granted monopoly power. Um, I'm as concerned about government granted monopoly power as, as just about anyone. Um, I am not convinced that giving a federal agency more power and more discretion is the way to achieve that goal. In fact, I'm, mm. I'm fairly skeptical of that view. Um, but I think some of that outside of the consumer welfare criticism is along the lines of uh, big is bad in its own right. Um, large firms have a hard to specify deleterious effect on you know, democracy or uh, economic inequality is another one. You can, mm -hmm. we could have a long talk about whether you could kind of fit that into the consumer welfare standard or not. But um, I think it's sufficiently flexible. You could think about it both ways. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so, so you've got a little bit of both sometimes mushed together. Um, I, I think that the second form, the outside of consumer welfare concerns are the most concerning, right? Because, um, antitrust institutions, I think have developed in a way that, um, is pretty healthy. The, the, by no means is the modern consumer welfare standard. Uh, perfect. I think my during my three years at the FTC, I think I led the the world in dissents from an administrative agency. Um, 
having disagreements with the majority and how it was being applied in one way or another. So um, I am a big believer that you do research and you do empirics and you figure you figure it out as you go. But that is a uh, a feature and not a bug of modern antitrust institutions. So long as we're talking about sort of within consumer welfare, once we're outside, um, I do worry. One, we're openly acknowledging we're going to make consumers less well off in exchange for something we really haven't specified very well um, or tried to test uh, or anything like that. Uh, Two, I think economics and the consumer welfare standard has brought a lot of discipline to potential outcomes with courts and agencies. Uh, the limit of things that are unlawful under a standard uh, other than the consumer welfare standard, you know, public interest or something sort of more, more vague, um, I think is problematic. I think one of the main contributions of the consumer welfare standard was it reduced rent-seeking incentives uh, where one came to the agency and said, uh, please do bad things to my rival because the rival had the option to say, let's go to an Article Three judge under the consumer welfare standard. And you can try your arguments there. Mm. Um, I think vaguer standards reduce that, um, reduce that incentive. Uh, so I mm-hmm. think there are a number of problems uh, with those approaches sort of outside of the consumer welfare standard. But I think uh, a lot of the criticisms and work being done that are um, along the lines of maybe the research on uh, non-competes or, or labor monopsony or vertical mergers or um, – some talk about you know nation acquisitions, you know maybe a good look and a focus on the data reveals things we didn't know, and we can better allocate the resources of antitrust agencies toward um, you know reducing errors in those areas. I think that's the way antitrust has always worked, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm quite comfortable with those. Mm-hmm. So my in, in closing, my, my impression has been that. A significant part of this new changing conversation about antitrust policy and what it should look like has been occurring outside to some degree of kind of traditional policy circles, traditional kind of academic, um, scholarly back and forth, and significantly within the political sphere, which are, of course inevitable. Um, but you know, to what extent do you think that's an accurate assessment? And, you know, what are your expectations going forward as to how this conversation might play out in, in a policy sphere? I mean, after, after all, you have considerable experience in that area. Yeah. So I think it's a fair description. There are, um, it's quite, it's, it's quite interesting to watch. I mean, a lot of the antitrust academics who I would characterize as, um, you know, really smart antitrust academics who are, are, are far more interventionist leaning than I, sort of the, the, the progressive antitrust movement kind of within, but within the mainstream, right, um, have been outflanked on, uh, I, guess, I guess, to the left, right? They've been outflanked to the left, um, whereas within the mainstream antitrust institutions, they were um, kind of the, uh, you know, wild, aggressive, willing to use antitrust in lots of situations. And, and uh, they have been made um, kind of mundane, middle of the road, right? The American Antitrust Institute, the AAI, you know, 10 years ago, if you were to ask me, what's the leading progressive antitrust think tank in the United States? It's AAI, AAI hands down. 
you know, AI testified uh, in the Senate Judiciary, consumer welfare standard uh, is the way to go. And all of the sort of hipster Neil Brandeis stuff is, um, uh, is, is, is a fool's errand. And I think that shows exactly sort of how much the landscape on the antitrust left has changed. It's changed on the right, too. Um, I sat in that same Senate Judiciary hearing not too long ago about the consumer welfare standard. And maybe the toughest questioning I got was from a Republican senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley. Um, and so, you know, you sort of seen that the, the two ends of the sphere come, you know, come and form a circle and touch each other. Um, where you're having kind of a, you know, certainly a political moment around antitrust. You've got, uh, you know, presidential candidates, Liz Warren out there with, uh, you know, detailed antitrust plans, no doubt other presidential candidates um, to raise similar issues. So I don't think the political attention is going away anytime soon. I think that's in part because, um, you know, political folks have found a way to make the issue salient. It's also true that a lot of large firms, um, you know, consumers, uh, people, voters t- touch Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple and, you know, they, they, they touch some of these large firms. And so I think it's been a little bit easier to make um, politically salient some of these uh, some of these issues. I do think um one of the really interesting features about the tension between the political world and academic institutions in this area has been, um, I don't think, uh, I think you are right, that you don't see a lot of the um, sort of hipster Neo Brandeisian stuff in academia. Some, some, I, you know, uh, Lena Khan will no doubt leave uh, her old position and go to a big uh, academic job as she should. Um you know, short, shortly. Um, so you've got some in academic positions. Um, Tim Wu probably floats a little bit between some of these camps um, and has obviously a, a prominent academic position. But I would say by and large, the overwhelming consensus in academic institutions has been um, let's fight within the consumer welfare standard. Some of that might be, um, look, I think it is difficult um, in a lot of the paper and, you know, people can um, read for themselves to evaluate the arguments. But I think a lot of the arguments that the consumer welfare standard has failed um, just in terms of evaluating the empirics and the evidence just aren't really up to snuff. Um, I don't think those ideas within the industrial organization sort of mainstream economic world have been successful. I think most of those those the ideas have been, you know, criticized by modern I/O economists, and so they've had a little bit of a slower uptake in that world. I think people like um, uh, my friend Tim Wu or Lena Khan, um, who are pushing some of the ideas, have been quite strategic and smart about the way. They have done so. If I were in their positions, the likelihood that I um, move the Supreme Court anytime soon is small. Um, and so, what you go to con- you go to Congress, right? Or you you try to advance rulemaking through uh, the agencies where it requires three votes, and the commissioners change all the time. So, what I see uh, in terms of 
what happens with this debate moving forward. I think you'll see a concentrated effort um, politically. I think you have it now, but I think you'll continue to see a concentrated effort uh, politically. Um, less through adjudication, which is fascinating from, I think, an antitrust history perspective, because so much of modern de- doctrine has happened, you know, uh, the revolution we talked about earlier, you know, it's it's in your casebook, right? It, it it happened in in private litigation, and I think a lot of this movement now is um, a fight on the hill. An area where I think we'll get more fight, and it's just starting, is uh, potential rulemaking. I mean, the FTC on the competition side has been fairly dormant in terms of production of rules. They have said consumer welfare standard and the rule of reason makes sense. Let's go adjudicate. Instead of doing doing rulemaking, I think a new part of, um, at least new to me, of the hipster Neo Brandeisian push has been, at least from from some um, parts of that camp, has been bright line rules. Let's manage competition with some bright line rules. You know, ten percent market share thresholds, or um, you know, bans on this or that or the other. Um, non competes are are an example. So I think you're going to see a little bit more of a fight with rulemaking out of the FTC, which raises a whole nother sort of new battlefront in antitrust. It is uh, undoubtedly um, what I tell my my uh, friends in the Antitrust Academy is um, the antitrust academics who are uh, not familiar with administrative law uh, be- better get there soon because I think that uh, that will be the next battle. Cool. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Uh, I really enjoyed your paper, and it's been excellent to benefit from your expertise in this area. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. be cash or charge. When you buy something, there are two ways you can pay for it, cash or credit. When you pay with cash, you're making one purchase. When you buy on credit, you're really making two purchases. First, you're buying the item you wanted. Second, you're buying the money you need to pay for the item. Credit is not free. You pay for the money you use, either indirectly when the seller raises the cash price or directly when he imposes finance charges. So when you go shopping, shop for a good deal on credit, too. Look for the annual percentage rate and get the lowest rate possible. Don't pay any more than you have to pay. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.